My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. with Denise, who I met on a permaculture course that they came and did at our farm. And also Denise, very kindly, is the person who designed the logo for Kyliak. Uh, so that's another connection we've made. And I've asked them today to begin to tell me a little bit about their journey towards where they live now on a small holding in Tipperary and maybe some of the chopping and changing that I think probably goes for everyone along our lives and that eventually heads in a in a direction that might result in something like the small holding where you now live, Denise. So do you want to start somewhere, it doesn't really matter where on that journey, that you think eventually brings you to where you are now? It's hard to pick like a starting point, I guess, because so much has like fed into it from the very, some of my earliest memories, I think, were being really, really connected to and soothed by nature. It was always a very strong drive in me to want to be around any form of nature, any any open space, any animals. I, I felt often felt a lot more connected to nature than people. And I know there's the try to avoid like disconnecting people and nature because we are all the same thing. But the society that we're in at the moment, it does feel very disconnected, even though in truth, it's not that disconnected. So when I say more connected to nature than humans, it's more how it feels within society rather than the truth of everything being interconnected. So from a very young age, just really wanted to be around nature all the time and actually had what now is sort of termed like eco-anxiety, I guess, kicked in for me from a very young age. I remember talk the ozone layer depleting and like acid rain and all sorts of threats, you know, probably a lot of reasons why I focus so much on threats when I was like a kid, but I was very preoccupied with it. So yeah, that, that was a huge part of my journey to, I guess, where I am now is always this awareness, this mix between a deep connection with nature and an awareness of almost existential threat to nature that's caused by humans. So I can't imagine what it would be like to be a kid now, 30 years later. It's so much worse. And I was so worried about it back then. I think if I was trying to cope with the information now as like a, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old, it'd be devastating. Was there anything at that time that you could do about that or what happened next to you? We used, I, I was trying to think of things that I used to do, like used to do stuff. I remember one really funny incident, me and my mate, we used to always hear of sponsored things. Someone does something in a particular way and they get sponsorship to like raise awareness. 
But I guess processing that information, we didn't really know properly how the thing works. So we did this like barefoot walk to raise awareness about rubbish and stuff like that. But we never told anyone and we didn't actually get any sponsorship. So we told my mom afterwards that she was just like, what did you do? That's not you just walked around barefoot for a while. But there was always a drive try and do things picking up litter or trying to rescue bugs small things you know and I think actually for a long time in my teenage years like people would look at you like you were mad if you talked about climate change like it just wasn't to the forefront of people's minds you know back then so there'd be very few peers or anyone I talked to that like had any sort of I would be like we're all going to die and people would just be like I've never even heard of acid rain what are you on about like I mean in in one way it's incredibly inspiring that there's such a huge movement around it now, but engaged with it now, but it's come at the fact that it's so much more urgent now. Like really so much of how society is structured is it's so counterintuitive that like children can see much easier than adults that have been conditioned into it can see like just how much it doesn't make sense, how things are set up and in conflict with a lot of the natural world around them. It was very obvious, I, and I think it's obvious to a lot of younger people how even contradictory it is for us to live in these like extractive, polluting ways, you know, and, and all the other negative impacts that we're having. As I got older, that as well as a lot of other things like formed my views like on society as a whole. My teenage and early 20s was when I really got into counterculture, like very anti-authoritarian. And it was when I first discovered punk scene, DIY sort of counterculture, anarchism, all the things gave me a, a way out of general society while also creating and harboring actual community care, a way of relating to other people and in the environment, things around you that were just seemed to be really lacking in, I guess, society as a whole. And you say that a piece of that is the culture of care. I, I guess I was very driven to seek out cultures of care, different ways of being, I guess, coming from a position of knowing like something was lacking, but not really being able to vocalize or verbalize exactly what it was other than from the position of being like, you but are shit. Coming from, you know, a, ne- a negative loss position, I guess, and trying to figure out what it was that was missing. And I think a, a large piece of that puzzle is about care, like how communities are structured and how at the core of communities, this idea of community care just radically alters how people relate to each other. And it's, I think it's a huge part of what's missing in how a lot of particularly like Western societies are are organized at the moment is so little focus on care and community care. And it's there's a very heavy focus like individualism, a lot of political reason. There's a heavy focus on like the nuclear family as, as the only valid way of accessing support or care. But in so many communities, the family unit doesn't last and doesn't survive. So like, there's this huge absence of strong community because individual needs above all else, rather than how you truly flourish within a communal caring environment, rather than only looking out for yourself and only looking out for like a small group of people who are related directly to you. Did you see examples of being with each other that began to show an alternative? The punk scene in general that I got involved in 
there was a strong emphasis on care and the ways that that manifested would be in things like social spaces that were non-hierarchical autonomous spaces that were there to to foster sense of community. A whole range of different things would happen in those spaces, like community kitchens that would open once a week or a few times a week for meals. And then other things like food not bombs, again, a non-hierarchical, non-centralized group that cooks meals and then just gives them out for free as a, a manifestation of like community care, you know, that extends outwards. Like retrospectively, you can see this track, but at the time I was also just 20 something year old having a bit of a wild time and also into community care and anarchism like looking back and it it's very clear that that's what I was searching for the entire time was this like emphasis on community and the different ways that it manifested and every time that I came across something like a community kitchen or an autonomous space community workshop non-hierarchical organizing with a focus on community I was like that's what I want finding it and building strengthened my resolve or my knowledge that like that's the direction that I wanted to go. The wildness of it all, there was definitely uh, an undercurrent of anger to it. It's a really enraging thing to to witness and to think about and to, to hold space for this destruction and, and this, what feels like this huge existential threat and this dread. You know, there's a lot of grief there, but like, yeah, parallel to the grief, there's, and there always was like a huge amount of anger at how we got to this point and how so much of why we're were you know when I was younger and still are now like why we're at this point is because of things that seem so far out of your control because of how power is structured I refer to society a lot but what's really at the core of why society is structured the way it is is the way that power is organized within our societies my anger with society to be clear it's very very based at the people at the top who hold the power because there's so much control in the hands of so few people and there's so much destruction wrought. I don't think it's individuals within society that that are the problem. And I think individualizing the issue to say like, oh, this person's wrong and this person's wrong and this person's wrong for like using a plastic straw is never the issue. My anger is like with the way that capitalism has structured society and the way that capitalism's older brother colonialism has structured society. The anger goes way back and way higher than like just the people in society around me. The anger definitely was part of what fueled my exploration. And I guess that's how I ended up in the punk scene, you know, rather than other countercultures that maybe weren't as loud or furious or angry sounding like there was a huge amount of frustration and anger and there still is I'm a bit older now so it's like I'm not quite as loud there's a huge amount of anger in in how we ended up where we are and for a long time I didn't have I guess I didn't have a focus and I didn't have a direction because I it sounds so stereotypical, like young punk, but I was like, there's no future. So like, there's no point in planning for a future. Like, there's no point in moving towards any goals because there is no future to move towards. But I think I did a lot of, a lot of thinking about that and a lot of reading. And I guess as I moved towards my like late, like mid to late twenties, saw actually the, the futility in, in that attitude also robbing yourself of any growth or plans or future. And it really works 
it works in the interest of the systems that are at play for you to not feel like there's a future because if you don't feel like there's a future you don't fight for it so plays into power to feel so disempowered later to like I always loved things like natural building and straw bales and I was exposed to that I guess in my early 20s just a lot of crossover you know but like Ireland is small island so there's a lot of crossover between like punks and and hippies and the people who'd be into permaculture and stuff like that so some friend of a friend would be off like doing some round wood building somewhere and always just really loved it thought it was amazing later 20s doing an awful lot more to like get out of the the catastrophic mindset and more into like a a building nurturing mindset is when I really decided that it was time to yeah pursue some of the things that I really like valued rather than just sort of being really angry all the time I guess he's really started to think about putting roots down rather than feeling sort of very rootless. And I was wondering if in parallel to that because I know you as an artist I wondered if that supported that um with my art my art is all and my art and any sort of creativity has always been like my I guess my anchor like I've been drawing for as long as I could hold a pencil creating is as vital to me as like bre- breathing air you know I can't a lot of it I use as a way of coping with anxiety and coping with stress and coping with any sort of like mental health issues that I have coming up like a huge amount of what keeps me steady or at least as steady as possible is utilizing art as a sort of like catharsis and a sort of therapy. I was a tattoo artist for uh, many years and I was obviously drawn and illustrating a lot before that. I'm still technically a tattoo artist now. I just haven't tattooed for the past year because of the pandemic and I've really shifted my focus more towards illustrations now. All of the things that I create, they're really embedded within them is just a just this deep love and appreciation for nature and just everything I see around me all the time. Like I've such a an intense love and connection, furs or foxes or hares or the white thorn or black thorn, like everything I see, I'm just like, God, I love it's I can't even vocalize the connection and love that I have for the nature that I have around me. So I try really hard to to honor it and and love it in my illustrations a lot of my drawings and my illustrations have a lot of folklore themes wrapped up in them folklore is like this perfect intersection of my love of history and my love of nature combined into into the these wonderful woven stories that are all through the landscape and all through all through deep times that and drawing on like that well of love and inspiration and also using it as a way of calming my anxiety. Like a lot of my drawings are highly detailed and I can always start to track my mental state by looking through my pictures. Like the more intensely detailed a picture is, is usually a time where I'm trying to get out of a bout of anxiety, like a somatic practice of using my body to like get out of my head. So if I see, if I look back on a piece and it's hyper detailed, I'm like, oh God, I had some stuff to work through there. <laughs> think you've just described how your art roots you and so what way did you seek out other things that would root you the ways that I sought out sort of being rooted I guess in the most literal sense I was looking for somewhere to physically be to put down roots incredibly 
like lucky and privileged that myself and my partner have this one and a half acre plus of land with an old derelict cottage on it. Really seeking out access to some land in order to be able to build and grow and just be on the land physically, physically putting down roots, physically rooting yourself and, and mentally rooting yourself. They're, they're incredibly intertwined. They can feel separate, but being somewhere in a physical space and being grounded and rooted to that space also feeds into feeling mentally and, and spiritually it's more rooted and nourished as well. We we became we got our land, became stewards of the land here um a few years ago and like I feel incredibly privileged to to be able to do it because I know it's so far out of reach for so many people. It was a real stretch to get the money together for us. Um and obviously it involves like leaving leaving the city and, and living in the middle of nowhere. But as we were sort of saying before the interview, like I've always very lucky in that I've always wanted to live in the middle of nowhere. So finding somewhere that was within our budget had to be in the middle of nowhere, but it sort of aligned perfectly. So once we were here, I had very little money. But coming from a background of, I guess, like DIY, um, DIY sort of punk community and all of the stuff that we had been involved in previously that anti-capitalist, anti-consumer. So there's always been a high focus and a high emphasis on um, reusing everything, recycling everything, like dumpster diving, just getting junk, repurposing. Like it's just been something that both me and my partner have been doing for decades. It was just the the obvious thing to do and the natural thing to do that we just um, sourced all our building materials on things like adverts and, and Gumtree and FreeCycle and stuff like that. So there's this triangle that I always think of that if you want to do anything, especially like building, it can either it good, quick or cheap and it can only ever be two of the three. So if you want something good and cheap, like it won't be quick. So we were very lucky that we have like a lot of time. So we just spent years gathering materials and just got them either free or cheap. But we definitely, yeah, just having to wait, wait a lot, get as many things as we could for free or cheap, basically. So our, our everything that we used for building was either on site or sourced, basically people's junk that they were throwing away that we've repurposed and, and built a cosy little house out of. The, the plot of land that we got, I guess one of the reasons that it was very cheap was that it's very inaccessible. And another reason I think it was so cheap was um, it had basically just been a farm's dumping ground for however long, decades, centuries, I don't know how long, but like there was, it was really degraded land and do like degraded as in degraded by human human waste and human use so there was just to the to the eye when you first looked at it it just looked like brambles brambles and overgrowth sort of everywhere it actually looked like really beautiful like really wild but when we actually got into it and dug down a bit there was just piles upon piles upon piles of just rubbish everywhere hundreds of meters worth of silage plastic just buried under soil and old buckets and waste everywhere so we decided to clear 
out all the piles. We're actually still doing it now. Every once in a while, we'll find a new pile of of just the most hideous rubbish. So it's an it's an ongoing process of trying to to clear out all of the the different twine and plastic and shattered buckets and everything that's that's caught up in the land and and cleared out. But we had this one pile, and honestly, it took us to know weeks, a month. Whenever I think of it, I still shudder a bit. But it was just the most disgusting rubbish. But we decided to so we separated out all of the rubbish, all of the plastic, and then separated out a lot of the metal scrap that was in the pile and separated out all of the soil eventually. And then we brought the metal to the scrapyard and we got money for it. And then that money went straight into disposing of all the other rubbish that was there. So it was like a net, like we we broke even. We joke a lot about the piles on the land because honestly, we spend about 70% of our time here just clearing up rubbish that's been here for decades. So we're we're always we're always shifting piles around, just clearing, just trying to just trying to let the land breathe and to bring it back to some sort of equilibrium where the land does better off as well, you know, with all the rubbish gone. It's not just for our own gain, it's to try and to remedy remedy some of the damage that's been done to us. It's been a lot of work, a lot of a lot of hard, gross work to do it. So somewhere along re encountering permaculture. I was exposed to permaculture and permaculture ideas. Yeah, from my early 20s, I, I lived with someone whose brother was studying permaculture in Kinsale. And then I like lived with and, and visited another another friend whose family had built a straw bale house. And just I had always sort of known about it. But I guess at the time in my early 20s, I was much more involved in the punk scene or, or anarchism or named like anti-capitalist scenes. I think one of the things, my perception of permaculture, I guess, at the time, even up till recently, has given me a bit of hesitation. White men codified all of this like indigenous information. I know we've talked about this in other conversations, had a hesitation to very recently of being involved in it because of, I guess, the history of it and the perception that it was just middle class benefiting from a lot of like indigenous cultures information. And I'm really grateful to see perception narratives sort of being challenged and and discussed within permaculture, because like some of it, I think, was perception. Some of it is rooted in in the history of permaculture. There's so much value and worth in permaculture, but I think there's a huge amount of value in reckoning with whatever extractive colonial tendencies like there have been in it. You know, and I think there's huge worth in I think there's huge worth in any in everyone reckoning with their roles. Yes, I haven't been, I guess, like initially reluctant to be involved in permaculture. Actually, my partner um, ended up doing the course uh, a few years ago and just gained so much from it. And also while he was doing the course, he was sort of saying that even within the course, like those conversations of things that I was concerned about, like were happening. They were challenging the roots of it or challenge. There was definitely discussions happening that recognized it and wanted to to challenge it and, and move on from it. So knowing that there was people within within it who, yeah, like just had an awareness and a, and a willingness to to challenge, to look back and sort of have a reckoning with the history, but also move forward with. It definitely made me more willing to be involved 
with something where there were people with an awareness of what the issues were and a willingness to like work towards either resolving them or like, you know, at least being in community with the people who recognize the issue, you know, and like forming whatever else I could see some of my values reflected back in what like um, my partner had been like saying you know were some of the conversations happening there so I guess I was more more willing to dip my toe in and see see what it was what it was about. So this is when I met you you decided to come and do our permaculture course and um, course coordinator Hannah we had a summary that we used to call the Patrix the patriarchal industrial meeting. <laughs> we, we were trying to design a permaculture course that had care at the center of it and we're still trying to do that I think you would have come along in probably year six mm-hmm. where we were including much more of that framework of the house that modernity built with the broader perspective uh, than permaculture being about gardening actually it was for the word revolution uh, when you did dip your toe in what you found useful or what you've been able to gain from it that particularly you brought back to the land and your own lives so when I did dip my toe in what I found like a growing sort of expansive process like for me it was much more about finding community and growing community and um even though I'm a massive hermit and I never hang out with anyone I still like to be within a community so I mean there was things that like bring back and apply immediately like soil health was the one that like my unexpected obsession after um was it Dave Beecher that session it was just mind-blowing you know I've always known that soil health was at the core of all living things but like to really go in depth about exactly what was going on ticked over something in my brain where I blew my mind so I think that really was massively instantly expansive for me like how much I got out of that like it's current about yeah being in community and growing community with other people who hold similar values and are also willing difficult conversations and hold space for those conversations about how how we can be you know in relationship with with the land and other people and the rest of the world and have reckonings with the history of colonialism and the history of of capitalism and all of the all of the heavy stuff like me and me and Steve were having a conversation last night of just about like you know reckoning with the impact colonialism like is really like you is a conversation where you could go it'll go as deep as you're ever willing to go because it's it it just impacts and affects like so every single thing in life you know it is such wide reaching impacts and consequences like you literally point to literally anything and follow a thread back to how colonialism has in some way impacted your relationship to that thing today you know it's been really enriching to have this conversation with you and I absolutely agree we could continue unpicking and going deep into all of these questions of how our relationships are and how they've been affected and how we can regenerate and repair ourselves our land you know while in very literal way you talk about dealing with the piles of rubbish and I think that's a pretty good (laughs) metaphor for what you've just talked about the the consequence and what's left behind from the extractive systems 
and the degradation of land and people. So anything else you want to finish off with? Talking and having my thoughts recorded is has been a bit anxiety inducing for me, but it's been really nice to to chat it out. I guess in in finishing up, just to make the point that like as much as recognize and want to talk about talk about colonialism, like till the cows come home, as much as it's affected uh, me and Ireland, uh, it's such an ongoing thing for so many people in communities, predominantly black and indigenous people and other people of color. And yeah, just to name specifically the white supremacy and racism that's like birthed by this colonial history. It's really important that the voices of the people most directly impacted by that colonialism, that racism and the white supremacy um, are centred in these conversations about deconstruction at all. As we further this conversation, you know, amongst our communities, that it's really important to to focus and center the voices of like the communities that are still so directly impacted by all of these structures of colonialism that have been put in place for like hundreds of years.